Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wong. Everybody night here on State of the Bay, we're live and local with news, conversation, and culture from this place we call home. Tonight, we'll explore the risks and rewards of having the AI industry hub here in San Francisco. Will it help reverse the doom loop narrative with new jobs and investment? Or is the race to deploy AI moving too quickly for adequate safeguards to protect against the spread of misinformation, deepfake scams, and other intended consequences. Later, we'll talk to Shoshi Parks about ways to give back and spark joy in our communities this holiday season. That's all coming up next in this hour. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. Later this hour, we'll be talking to 7x7 Magazine's associate editor, Shoshi Parks, about ways to give back and spark joy in the Bay Area this holiday season. But first, Mayor London Breed has declared that San Francisco is the AI capital of the world. If this is true, what does it mean? What benefits does the AI industry bring to San Francisco and this region, and what risks does it pose? To help us understand the potential risks and rewards of AI, I'm joined by San Francisco Chronicle's tech reporter, Chase D. Felici Antonio. Hi, Chase. Welcome to State of the Bay. Thanks for having me. And listeners, we want you to be part of this conversation. What benefits do you think generative AI will bring or what risks are you concerned about? Do you work for an AI company in San Francisco? Tell us about your experience using ChatGPT or any of the new generative AI technologies. We want to hear from you. Give us a call. We're at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. Or email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. We are live people doing this radio show, not robots. It's not chat GPT. Just want to make that clear. So Chase, I mean, this is a moment for our listeners to ask super basic questions about AI. And I'm going to start with the first one, which is Maryland and Breed's statement that we are the capital, AI capital of the world. Is that true or is it hype? I mean, I think it's ultimately a little bit of both. Um, I mean, the city has this vested interest in kind of talking up its status as a tech capital, a tech center on the world stage. Um, I mean, that's something that arguably ebbed somewhat during the pandemic because of work from home, um, but it hasn't vanished by any means. I mean, I think, go ahead. Oh, I just what makes us the AI capital of the world, though? What's I mean, I think what is true is that a lot of these marquee companies, OpenAI, Anthropic, and also like a growing constellation of startups, I mean, they are definitely based in San Francisco. And then also on top of that, you have entrepreneurs coming here to invest and just to be part of these meetups, hackathons, you name it. I mean, there's spaces in the mission elsewhere that are entirely devoted just to hanging out, talking about AI, making new technology. And I think beyond just these big companies being here, it's this growing culture and investment around the technology in San Francisco that's kind of making it this epicenter. This term artificial intelligence um, was coined in the 1950s with machine learning, and that certainly has been evolving over several decades. Now we call it AI, and it's generative artificial intelligence. Explain how that's different from conventional artificial intelligence that we might have been using in the past. Right. So, I mean, the big difference here is that, you know, November of uh, last year, of 2022, um, OpenAI came out with ChatGPT, which is kind of this interface, essentially, to use um, their GPT chatbots, which a lot of people have used now. And essentially, that made it so that you didn't have to be an AI researcher to use this kind of technology. I mean, in the past, a lot of what AI, and to use the term machine learning, was about was taking a really big data set 
and then having a piece of software ingest it, you know, quote unquote, think through it, and then being able to give you insights about a piece of data or information that you didn't have before. Generative AI and uh, products like what OpenAI makes, it essentially spits out something that is new, for lack of a better term. It uses existing information. It's trained on different kinds of data from across the internet, uh, text, video, images, you name it. But it's generating something that essentially was not there before. Well, you know, as we were talking about, this is this is technology that has existed, but suddenly I, it feels like we're in an arms race, you know, to deploy generative AI in new ways. What was it exactly that, you know, started this off? Like, why is everyone talking about it all the time? I mean, I think there was a lot of work being done on this um, behind the scenes in academia and in the tech world. But then really when um, ChatGPT came on the scene, anybody could use it. It was free and continues to be in some cases free to use for the public. And I think people publicly and across the government and elsewhere realized how powerful this technology had become, how hard people have been working on it for a really long time. And that kind of created the boom, so to speak, that we're in now. And now you see every company claims to have an AI tool. Everything they're using is AI powered. So there are a lot of companies out there doing this in a real legitimate way. And there's a lot of fascinating applications of it. But then also with any technology, you have this hype cycle behind it. I mean, that exists to drive investment, to drive excitement, but it also just is a way to sell other products that may or may not be AI. But especially in San Francisco, these companies really do abound. You know, talking about the fads, I'm thinking about a few years ago when Facebook said, oh, it's all about the metaverse. We're going to be living in this metaverse. You and I are going to be living with little simulations of us online. And, you know, it's been a few years I haven't been in the metaverse myself. And is this um, generative AI like that fad or does it really have legs? I think it's a great question. I think it remains to be seen. Um, I think like with any technology, it feels like we're at the beginning of something new and then some things can really fizzle out. Some things kind of find their way in other parts of our lives. I think what's different about AI is that a lot of uh, professional people, a lot of people in the government at different levels are taking it really seriously. And there's been executive orders at different levels, a lot of meetings, international and otherwise, convened about this. I mean, this is something that feels a little bit different from previous hype cycles because it's really broadly applicable. It's not just someone saying, hey, this is what we're doing now. We're doing the metaverse or whatever it may be. I mean, we can get into this a little bit later, but there are so many different ways to apply this technology. And that's honestly one of the exciting things, but also one of the frightening things maybe a little bit about this is it has all of these myriad applications, and we're kind of at the beginning, at the precipice of what those might be. I don't think anyone knows for certain as much as they might tell you with steely-eyed certainty, but um, there are a lot of ways that this could help and a lot of ways that this could hurt, and that's a new place to be. Well, I want to go into the benefits and the the risks, but first I want to ask you, just as a tech reporter, you know, you talked about the boom-bust cycle of technology in this region. What does it feel like to be reporting on something that, you know, I've read so many articles now about the dawn of the artificial intelligence age. Do you feel as a reporter this is new and different and is that exciting? It does feel like a powerful technology. It feels like something that is broadly applicable and um, broadly understandable. I mean, I think one of the things that um, really defines a tech boom is, are people using it? I mean, last decade, you had the, the rise of things like um, like Twitter and Facebook, especially, particularly in San Francisco, and um, things like uh, companies like Uber, Airbnb. 
And those were things that became really, really valuable, um, but they were also things that people used. And I think they and they continue to use. And whatever you may think of the technology and the effect of those companies being in San Francisco, et cetera, I mean, those were things that generated a lot of hype, but they also kind of changed the way we do do things in our life. And I think that AI, because it's so broadly applicable, could go in that direction. Um, I just don't think we've decided exactly where we want to point this energy ray of mm-hmm. artificial intelligence yet. It reminds me of what um, Sergey Brin, one of the founders of Google, once said about technology. He, he said, you know, I want technology that's like a toothbrush, something that I use every day and that's going to permeate my life. Like that's the technology I want to stand behind. And that's what this feels like. I mean, that's the thing. In, in covering this boom, so to speak. I mean, I'm always looking for examples of the technology actually being used. Yeah. Uh, there, There is so much hype and there is so much talk about everything being AI. But what I really think is fascinating is when I talk to a medical researcher or someone designing a building or something in that vein, and they say, look what I did. I used this to do something faster or differently than I would have before. And maybe someone's been working on that project for a long time, and now I'm just asking them about this because the boom is happening. But there are these pretty concrete applications that do come about, not to say that there isn't plenty of hype to come along with it, that make it feel like there could be something built on top of this. But again, we're in such an early stage of it. Well, let's talk about some of those specific examples that you said. You know, in your reporting, you've discovered um, San Francisco is already putting some of the possibilities into play. And you've written about a new housing project that will be designed largely by AI, which can quickly spit out multiple variations of plans to choose from way faster than any architect who's trying to comply with the building codes. Feels a little scary for the architectural sector. Um, But how is AI going to help us design better buildings? I mean, this is early stage stuff, but I I watched this uh, described to me and then demonstrated for me of exactly how this technology works. I mean, essentially, the idea here is we already have design software that's really good, that you can build in a digital environment um, and design things based on how how tall you want the windows to be, how much light you want to have, where, where you want things to face. The idea was this technology builds on top of that and takes all these other examples of buildings that have been built over the years and more or less at the press of a button, it still takes an a hour or so. It has a lot of computing to do. It can uh, spit out different examples of, uh, of an affordable housing development, one that's being um, uh, permitted and built in Oakland right now called the Phoenix. And, you know, it's, it's using modular c- construction, so um, essentially, for lack of a better term, boxes that are stacked and built ahead of time, so it makes it a little bit easier for the computer to think through them. But... It's interesting. It's not that it's this magic button that you can press to fix the problem. There's still permits. There's still a housing crisis here. It's still one particular development. But what it's useful for is that you can create all these designs and then go to all those stakeholders, the community stakeholders, the construction uh, management company, uh, everybody, the funders, everybody who's involved here and say, how do we want to do this? Here are the examples. Here's what it's going to cost. And we want, what do we want to optimize for here? And they can pick one or they can say, go back to the drawing board and you can do it again. Um, again, this technology is a tool. It's not a magic bullet. It's not going to fix these larger systemic problems that we've built ourselves into, particularly in the Bay Area when it comes to things like housing over the course of decades. But it does provide, in some cases, a new way of thinking about old problems. And again, tools have to be wielded by people, not just uh, swung around blindly. 
Yeah, I can. I mean, the leaps in technology when you think about architecture in the 50s or as a literal drafts person making those plans. And now what you're saying is, well, at least you can spit out different permutations of the plans that are um, mindful of the building codes quickly. Um, and there's a flexibility there. So that's a positive use of the technology. And you're, is it, you're saying it's generative in the sense that it's pulling from other types of buildings, so it's thinking on its own a little bit? A little bit, yeah. It takes um, designs from a, a modular housing uh, construction company um, out on Mare Island, and those boxes that they build, there's only so many uh, versions of them, and then the footprint of the actual uh, construction site is kind of built into what it's thinking. So, And there's certain rules and parameters that you, you design in, and then it basically says, okay, based on those parameters, you can have the buildings be this high, you can have uh, one building here, you can have four here, or four here, and one there, um, and you can really break it down to optimize for things like um, uh, carbon emissions, uh, not mm-hmm. just in the construction process, but in terms of like the entire life cycle of the building, how much, uh, how, how much money it costs to heat and to cool, all these different things. And again, we're just at the beginning of this. These are really interesting ways of thinking about this. Um, obviously, you can't make everything perfect, but you can see if you move something 10 feet to the right, how much that changes the projected cost and the projected cost of the heating and cooling, things like that. I mean, things that would just take a lot of people power and time to do. And that's what these programs are really good at. They're really good at thinking faster for us and doing, you know, for lack of a better term, the grunt work um, that really smart architects, for example, don't need to spend their time necessarily doing. Well, you know, you hear a lot um, about with the generative AI that sometimes it hallucinates, that it makes up things that aren't really there, that it's, you know, it makes these mistakes, these errors. In a program like that, how do you vet against, you know, making mistakes? I mean, it's a good question. Hallucination is something that happens a lot of times with what you would call a large language model. So that's what OpenAI is building. The the program, the generative program that they're using to build the buildings in Oakland um, yeah, it, it probably will uh, spit out, in theory, a bunch of permutations in some cases that don't make any sense or are wrong. But that's using such a smaller data set. It's trained on so fewer um, objects that it's doesn't – it knows <laughs> – it's harder for it to make a mistake. Whereas if you're training a large language model on something that is almost literally everything on the internet, um, it's go- occasionally going to just – pull something out of thin air that doesn't really make any sense. Um, a lot of it has to do with what you train things on um, as well as like the, the quality of the program. Um, yeah, like something like uh, the GPT products, they, and, and you know, to be fair, other uh, generative AI models, they do hallucinate, they do make things up. It's a bit of a game of whack-a-mole, and researchers will tell you that they don't always know why that's the case. It's These programs are so complicated that in some cases their creators can be a little bit baffled by some of the outputs. Well, we have to take a quick break and we'll be back with more with San Francisco Chronicle tech reporter Chase DeFelice Antonio. We're talking about generative AI and what it means for San Francisco, the region, and our lives. Stay with us.
Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. I'm here with San Francisco Chronicle tech reporter Chase DeFelici Antonio. We're talking about generative AI and what it means for the region and our and our futures. And we'd love to hear from you, our listeners, and you're welcome to join this conversation. What benefits do you think generative AI will bring? What risks are you concerned about? Do you work for an AI company in San Francisco? Have you experienced any of the deep fake scams that we keep hearing about that use AI. Tell us about your experiences by giving us a call at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. Or email us at stateofthebay at org. You know, Chase, before the break, we were talking about some of the ways that generative AI has been used, and you were talking about in the uh, the case of housing. I mean, a lot of people are familiar with Ch- ChatGPT, and as a journalist, you know, who writes for a living, are you concerned at all about what ChatGPT represents? As far as what it means for the profession of journalism in particular? Yeah, and just writing, Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. I, I think it's very um, reasonable to go towards the area of I'm, I'm concerned about this. I'm concerned it's going to automate me out of a job, so to speak. But I think, again, going to the, back to the idea of this being a tool uh, that we can use. I mean, I, I don't I kind of make a point of not using it in, in my work every day. But I think that there's ways, particularly if you're doing creative writing, things of that nature, to kind of ideate to if you're if you are stuck somewhere or you want to condense something down or you want to. Um, do something more quickly. I think there's ways to use this to get around the blocks that naturally occur in our own brain, kind of to like augment our own intelligence, which I think is exciting. I mean, I think in the journalistic context, what's really important, I think, is to have disclosures and to tell people uh, if you are using this in any form, either to do research or to condense something down or to edit whatever it may be, to inform people about that and kind of bring them along on on the journey of that because, again, this is a developing thing. It's a new thing. We don't necessarily know where this is going. But personally, I'm not uh, staying up at night uh, having <laughs> visions of chat GPT quite yet. Well, there's a lot of talk about how, you know, generative AI is going to mean that we don't have jobs anymore, that we're going to lose our, our, I mean, our Accountants won't have accounting jobs. Architects, as we talked about, might not have certain kind of drafts, drafting jobs. Are we – we're not there yet? Are, are, how many years off are we from that? It's difficult to say. I mean there are certainly AI researchers who think that this thing, artificial general intelligence, so AI that's as smart as us or you know, smarter, is only a few years away, is five years away, is 10 years away, is 100 years away. A lot of people think since um, – a lot of researchers I've talked to think that since the release of the GPT tools that that's come closer. But again, to go back to the conversation about hallucinations, when these things break, sometimes it's almost funny. <laughs> the things that they say, it's it's bizarre. They're making things up. It's like talking to this really smart child or something that doesn't know its own power. And when you kind of look at it that way, it feels a little less like everyone is going to lose their jobs in the next five years. And – it feels, and I, you know, I am not an expert. I've talked to experts, but it, it does feel like the, maybe if this technology uh, is more truth than hype, that the accountants are going to have a little bit of a different job, and you will have more time to do other things with your um, in, in your profession. And maybe it'll augment and change the way you work. It's this new, really powerful tool. It's before using a stick, and now you're using a hammer. Um, that may be one way that this goes ahead. Well, let's go to the phones um, on line one. We've got Philip from Brisbane. Um, Philip, welcome to State of the Bay. What's your comment or question about generative AI? Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Well, uh, 
in the, I think in the general public, the big fear of AI is that it will be weaponized by the big players in the poisonous world of international intrigue. But as a counterbalance to that, I, I think, as little as I know about it, that it can present tremendous breakthroughs in medical science, say, particularly uh, in the field of virology, about which very little is known. Uh, that's my, my thought. Well, thanks for calling, Philip. What do you think about that, Chase? I, I think, broadly speaking, the, that's the right way of thinking about it, that this is something that um, is really helpful and powerful, uh, and it's also something that, if is not done correctly, could be injurious. I mean, I've written stories in the past about researchers at UCSF, for example, who have used um, algorithms that are machine learning and, broadly speaking, AI, not generative AI, but to look at different types of heart scans to pick up on these particular anomalies for potentially fatal heart conditions that are just really, really hard to detect, even if you're a really good doctor. I mean, that's a pretty straightforward way of using this technology, and it's really, really powerful, and it's probably only going to get better. But then there is also the question of how foreign state actors use this. Uh, there's a currently a kind of a quote-unquote arms war over who can um, get and make the most powerful chips, NVIDIA being the company mm -hmm. in the United States, actually based in the South Bay, that basically makes the chips that you need to train AI. There's other companies I've written about that are trying to catch up. Um, absolutely, that like there are concerns about that and how it might be used in a military context is already being used in a military context um, to automatically decide where to target um, in a war, for example, or to make drones a lot better and even potentially more autonomous than they already are. There's real concerns there. Um, but when you talk about AI, there's this broad swath of technology from generative AI to um, to machine learning and beyond that you're basically talking about. And I think it's something to definitely be aware of that this technology, like any other technology, can be used to really advance us and can be used to really hurt us. Well, let's go back to the phones. Line three, we've got Carl. Carl, welcome to State of the Bay. Uh, my question uh, revolves around the power consumption needs for uh, the AI. Um, I, I think I, Sam Altman was quoted somewhere as saying, you know, somewhat hyperbolically that one day we'll collapse entire galaxies to sort of power the compute that we need for AI. And I, I wonder what you think about the, how we satisfy the energy requirements for all of this compute and how we do that in a sustainable way. Great question. Chase, what do you think about that? I mean, certainly, you, we, we talked earlier about the computation that's required to even just create a, you know, a planning document for a building. What, what are the energy requirements going to be for this technology, and is that good for us? I mean, like with any uh, really powerful technology that requires a lot of what they call compute, basically like deep computer thinking, you do need um, essentially supercomputers powered by these complex chips and they're almost like big car engines uh, in the way that, in the same way that a, a gas engine needs a lot of water or coolant to cool it down because it's creating all this uh, energy and heat. Um, that takes a lot of energy. I, I went to a, a server farm down in the South Bay a few months ago to check one of these out to learn about the chips that are being used. And it was essentially across the street from a Silicon Valley power plant and, for lack of a better term, plugged directly into it. They were pumping something like six kilowatts constantly into the facility to say nothing of the, of the amount of water um, that they were using. And this was a pretty big facility running AI programs and essentially training AI programs. Um, I think as the technology gets better, it 
the power demands are going to increase. I mean, you saw a very similar thing when Bitcoin was all the rage. There were these server farms trying to uh, to mine Bitcoin through the increasingly complicated calculations to, um, to get that out of the ether. Um, I think if this technology does continue to advance the way that it's advancing, I mean, the other um, thing that the technology need to, needs to advance is a lot of money. So if people keep investing in it, then you're going to see more power resources required and honestly more um, water resources required. So I, I think we're not collapsing galaxies just yet, <laughs> but I think it is something to be aware of, particularly in a state like California where you know, PG&E has said it's, it needs to raise rates to take care of its infrastructure. I mean, power and particularly water are becoming increasingly precious and expensive resources. And who gets those, I think, is going to become a really important question if this industry does continue to exponentially increase in size and complexity and ability. Well, let's go back to the phones. Um, Amy from San Rafael, welcome to State of the Bay. Hi there. Thanks for having my call. Tell us what you, what what's your experience with AI. So I have a story to tell about being scammed, or in my case, fortunately, um, almost scammed using AI. Um, and I'd love to tell that story. Oh yeah, what That's happened? With, so um, I work in an elementary school. I reserve, I res, I got a phone call at about noon on October seventeenth from an unknown number on my cell phone. Um, and the, I never answer unknown numbers, but I answered this time because we had just had a big drill at the school and I had been working with, fire, with the fire department. And I assumed that it was them calling me back to sort of follow up on the drill that we had. So I answered the phone and it was my son's voice on the phone. Um, he was crying. He was hysterical. He was telling me he had been in a car accident. He couldn't tell me where he was. I don't know where I am, Mom. Um, I'm hurt and... I, and I don't know where I am, and I'm scared. And um, I was trying to ask him questions, and he wasn't really able to answer my questions because he was crying and hysterical. And then all of a sudden, somebody else got on the phone and said, um, are you Will Trapp's mother? This is Officer So-and-so from San Luis Obispo. Um, I want to tell you that your son's okay, but that he's been in an accident. Um, he is injured. We have him in the infirmary here in the San Luis Obispo jail, and we have him booked on reckless endangerment charges because he was on his cell phone and he drove through a stop sign and he hit a car being driven by a pregnant woman who was eight months pregnant and rushed to the hospital. We're holding your son here in jail and he's in the infirmary. We're taking good care of him, but, um, I'm just going to tell you what's going to happen next. He said, I'm going to give you the name and phone number of the public defender that's been assigned to your son's case. And I'm going to hang up from you in a few minutes, and you're going to call that person, and he's going to talk you through exactly how we're going to you know, care for your son and how we're going to get this worked out. He said, but right now I need you to get back on the phone with your son and calm him down because he's very upset. So I got back on the phone with my son, Will, and I talked to him for a while, and I tried to calm him down, and he was saying that he was scared and he was really nervous that that woman was injured and, um, you know, mom, you have to help me. And um, it was a very emotional phone call, obviously. Mm. Um, And then the police officer got back on the phone and said, okay, so, you know, call this person, David Bell, your son's public defender, and he'll talk you through what needs to happen. So hung up from that call, called another phone number, 
talked to this person named David Bell who um, told me he was assigned to my son's case and that my son, he said, your son's a good kid. I know he didn't mean anything by it, and we're going to do everything we can to, to work with you and work with him and, and get him the help that he needs in this situation. He said, I, I talked to the judge, and the good news is I got the bail down from $50,000 to $15,500. Um, he asked wow. me if I was in a position to get that kind of money, and I told him yes. And he, so he said, okay, as soon as you can get the money, call me and we'll work out which bail bonds place you take it to and then we can work towards um, getting your son out of jail wow i picked my set my husband up from his job and we went home and we rushed around the house and we packed our clothes and we packed some things for our son will that we thought he might want to have and we went to um the bank we got the money called the uh this david bell person back and he said um I'm having trouble finding which bail bonds place to take it to. Ma'am, I need you to go home right now. And I said, no, 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 we're not going home. We're going, we're, we're ready. We're, we're doing this thing. I'm, I got to get to my son. I need you to go home right now, ma'am. You need to listen to me. You need to go home right now. Hmm. And at that point I had thought, oh, geez, this baby has died. And now oh. it's a whole different ball game. And my son's never going to be the same again. And there's no bail anymore and um anyway we went home that turned out not to have been the case he said we can't find a bail bonds place for you to take it to um we're going to send a courier to your house to pick up the money Hmm. and my husband and i thought at that point okay this is this is not this doesn't sound right i said no i I need another option Uh, it's not going to work for me and it got fishier and fishier Hmm. so we left our house with our money because they had our address at that point oh and we went, drove around the corner and we started calling all the police stations in San Luis Obispo and they didn't have a record of the situation. Um, but at that point, I was convinced that my son had been kidnapped and I am literally on oh my, my knees goodness. in the street screaming, where's my son? Mm. Um, because I had spoken to him on the phone and he was in distress. Mm-hmm. And so I thought these people had my son at this point. Um, and the police, my, my husband was talking to the police at the time, and they said, well, have you called your son? And we said, well, no, we talked to him. Anyway, ended up calling my son, and he was at his house doing homework the whole time. Oh, my goodness. Oh, so this is one of those deep fake scams where they replicated the sound of your son's voice and put you did. through such trauma. I am so sorry this happened to you, Amy. And have you contacted well, the you. police about this or? Yeah, so the police, um, you know, they were helpful to the extent that they could be, but we called the San Rafael police and they said that there's literally nothing they can do. A, because there was no crime committed because we didn't lose our money. Mm-hmm. And B, because they said there is nothing we can do. Wow. Wow. I'm so so sorry this happened to you, Amy. That is just an incredibly traumatic experience. Um, Well, it was, and I'm happy to be able to tell the story because I don't want it to happen to anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. And and my my family and I decided that we were going to create a safe word Mm. amongst ourselves that only Mm. we know. So in Mm -hmm. any situation, I mean, who knows if it would have helped this time, but it's it's our plan moving forward. And I, I recommend it to everybody. Well, thank you for calling and sharing your story. And again, I'm happy to know that your son and your husband and everyone is fine. But, you know, going back to you, Chase, I mean, that is an example where that's 
a, a, a kind of artificial intelligence technology, obviously not used for good purposes. I mean, what's your take on that? I mean, I think, first of all, that's just terrible to hear and just sounds incredibly dramatic. And I'm, I'm so sorry that happened. Um, I think that kind of technology has been around for a while. It's gotten better. And now there's, if there's one positive thing to come out of the AI boom, it's that there is more awareness around um, that technology existing, but also its capabilities. I mean, I went to an event a while back um, with companies that use AI for audio, and they showed us an example of, the, with, with his permission, they created an intro to Alec Baldwin's podcast using his voice that they had created based on, like, I think 10 words or something like that, hmm. uh, uh, that he had said. And they, based on his cadence and his voice and his tone, they were able to create an entire intro that sounded pretty darn good. Wow. It sounded like that that deep, gravelly Alec Baldwin voice. And I mean, I think there's companies that are doing this for profit, and they're they're doing they're doing it with permission, with people's permission. They're doing it the right way, and it's kind of like an exciting frontier. And then there's also ways to access the technology. Maybe it's not as good. I mean, in the example we just heard, the sun is kind of repeating the same thing over and over again. Isn't really able to answer questions. Um, I think there's certainly tells and, and telltale signs. Um, I mean, it's difficult because you don't want to create a world in which everyone is completely paranoid and doesn't want to answer the phone and doesn't mm-hmm. know if they're talking to their son or some kind of bot or not. Um, but I think this is something to be aware of, that the technology yeah, the technology that's that powerful is, is mostly concentrated in, in a few hands. Um, but at the same time, it's certainly good enough now where a lot of different people can access it and, and use it for ill. I mean, a, I don't know, a safe word sounds like not a bad idea after that kind of experience. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I can assure listeners that this is Grace Wan. This is State of the Bay. And and I'm with tech reporter, San Francisco Chronicle tech reporter, Chase Felici Antonio. He's sitting in the studio with me. We are not chat GPT bots. Um, and if you're joining us, we're talking about generative AI and what it means for us and what it means for our future. And we've been taking calls from you, our listeners. We're at 866 798 8255. That's 866-798-8255. Or you can email us at stateofthebay at org. So Chase, we heard this horrible story about AI being misused. You were explaining how um, you know AI can be used to replicate your voice, which and they've done the same for Alec Baldwin with his permission. Makes you understand why the actors went on strike when you think about something like that. I mean, how do we center AI so it works for us instead of working against us? What are people doing to make sure that it remains a tool? I mean, I think there's a lot of conversation about around uh, regulation, around responsible AI, something that gets thrown around a lot. But I think at a certain point, we have to decide, and this is just my opinion, I, I think we have to decide if there are places in our life where we feel AI uh, does not belong. And the answer to that may be, no, it, it, it's okay everywhere. We just want to have certain safeguards on it. But I think the way to make sure that it remains a tool and not something that, that takes over is that we are responsible in how we use it. We don't want to just in, somehow inject this into the banking system or just decide that tomorrow it's in charge of all air traffic control. I mean, there are um, things that just are downright, I think we can all agree, kind of irresponsible to uh, have a growing technology like this, an emerging technology, all of a sudden um, be in control of something really powerful and important, making decisions uh, about things like um, who gets uh, health care or insurance yeah. or benefits, things like that. And I mean, I think those are things that legislators uh, at the state level, even at the federal level, are are thinking about or looking at. But it's just, it's a really difficult discussion to have when 
this stuff is still growing and there's this conversation around we don't want to strangle this technology at the get-go, at the outset. We want to make sure that it continues to develop, it continues to create um, economic opportunity, it continues to you know, run the economy in some ways and, and help out the tech sector um, and everything that comes with that. But at the same time, there's areas, I mean, elections also come to mind where there's a real chance for this stuff to to run awry, to run amok. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a real strong line of AI doomerism where this is going to uh, take over the world. It's going to destroy the financial system, all these things. I mean, I think that's getting maybe a little bit ahead of ourselves. And before we get there, there's some conversations around uh, in the immediate future of how do we want this to be used or not in the next election cycle that I think really need to be had at the local level, at the state level, at the legislative level. Well, considering a lot of a lot of counties don't even want voting machines, I can't even imagine getting to a place of AI. But I think one example of where maybe the technology and the hope for the technology got ahead of where the technology actually is is probably driverless cars. I mean, we saw here in the city with Cruise that, you know, at first it got the permission to drive around the city driverlessly and then, you know, one person is hit by a car and dragged by a cruise vehicle and suddenly that's rescinded. I mean, computer vision technology is good, but maybe it's not as good as it should be. And maybe that has set back the industry far more um, because they went too fast. I mean, I think a lot of this also is, I mean, that's a that's an excellent example. And computer vision is something that's been around for a pretty darn long time. I mean, I, I wrote stories about computer computer vision years ago when they were having a robot drive around a uh, uh, like a supermarket to try to decide what it needed to restock and when. Mm. And now, essentially, that same technology or a similar version of that technology, a lot more complicated with more examples, is being used to drive a car. Um, I, I think that example, too, with Cruise is really important because it gets to the point that uh, public perception is, is really important here. There is actually what the technology can and can't do, what it's being used for, what it's not being used for. But Waymo cars are still on the road. You see them driving around all the time in San Francisco in my neighborhood where I live elsewhere. Um, driverless cars sometimes with someone in the uh, in the shotgun seat, sometimes not. Um, I mean, I think if the more comfortable people become with this technology, to get back to your point about also tools, the more people use it, the more people become comfortable with the technology, I think the more we can kind of <laughs> – consensus is a big word, but we can decide in a group way um, where we want this technology to be and where we don't want it to be. But when there are real infractions and, and loss of trust and people even get hurt, mm. I mean, I think that it takes a really long time to, to rebuild that and to um, have people – say, okay, I'm willing to have this in this aspect of my life, whatever it may be. I think it's sometimes hard for people to understand, is this really going to be good for me? Sometimes with technology, you know, it's like we want cures for cancer and instead we get, oh, here we here's how to get ice cream delivered over, you know, in an hour. Um, but I recall seeing early on with driverless cars, I mean, I think it was Google put it out, where a person who was blind got into a driverless car on a course, you know, so it was very safe. And the glee on that person's face, the ability to be independent and go where this person wanted to go without relying on a bus or another person. I mean, you can see how in that sense, that particular technology is liberating and sort of good for humanity. I mean, I, absolutely. I think one thing that's really interesting is this question of 
whether or not certain areas need AI. That's an example that you just said. Where that seems like that makes sense. That that's helping someone um, do something they couldn't before. You know, better living through technology, so to mm-hmm. speak. But um, like for example, the executive order that. Um, Governor Gavin Newsom put out a few months ago talking about AI, you know, pretty broad frame framework, mo- mostly staying, saying that we should kind of study this and kind of look at it in a sandbox. And they came out with some more um, rules and guidelines more recently. And what that said it was essentially was before you do use it to do anything, to, to make a decision, to automate some, some work process, to write code, to reconcile some old uh, state systems, um, think to yourself, do you need really high-powered artificial intelligence to do this that can make a mistake and is fallible in a lot of ways, or is good old-fashioned human intelligence, and I'm paraphrasing here, good old-fashioned human intelligence uh, good enough? And I think that's also something that when you're in a hype cycle like this, there's a lot of money being thrown at a technology. Um, It's easy to forget that there are things that we're really good at ourselves. Um, I drove here today all by myself. <laughs> and uh, sometimes we take wrong turns, but that, that has a lot, um, there's a lot less downside to that. And so I think that's a really important consideration here um, when we're trying to reconcile these kinds of questions of where we want this technology to be in our lives. Well, I think in a, in a weird way, the scary, the robots are going to kill us mantra has been good because it's forcing people to take a pause and Congress is paying attention and Gav- Governor Newsom's paying attention, states are paying attention to really say, oh, this could go really not great. So let's think about how we want to regulate it in a way, as you said earlier, that will allow the industry to flourish, but in a way that helps all of us. And that's just in the United States. I mean, I assume that they're doing the same in Europe as well. Absolutely. Um, I I talked to one researcher about what they're um, doing at the EU parliament. I mean, obviously, that's an example where uh, that body was uh, quicker on the uptake when it came to privacy rules, for example, Mm -hmm. um, than we were here in the United States. We don't have a federal privacy law here, but we do have a state privacy law. Um, and they're kind of doing the same thing when it comes to artificial intelligence. They're pretty skeptical about what it means for advertising when it comes to politics or things like that. Um, and I think, you know, this is not – we're not the EU. It's, it's, it's a different place. Things that work there don't necessarily work here and vice versa. But I think when there's examples of someone moving forward pretty quickly and with a pretty tough edge – on regulation that there's probably something to be learned there. It's not going to look the exact same way. Our privacy framework in California is has a lot of similarities to but is not the exact same as that in the EU. And I think that's something definitely to to pay attention to. Well, there's so much here to talk about, and we've run out of time. But I hope that you'll come back, Chase, to tell us, I mean, maybe in six months, I'll be replaced. I don't think so, based on what you've said. Um, but we can talk about the latest developments. I'd be happy to come back. Um, so we've been talking to t- the San Francisco Chronicle. Chronicle technology reporter Chase Di Felici Antonio. See, now you know it's not AI because I just messed that up. That was the real thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we're going to have to leave it there. But thanks again for joining us, Chase. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll hear about ways to give back and spark joy in San Francisco during the holidays. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to State of the Bay. This is Grace Wan. It's the holiday season. You've seen the lights. You've seen the decorations. And people are making their lists and checking them twice. And But many of us are looking for ways to give back to our communities. So whether your preference is to volunteer your time or donate goods and services or give to charity, Shoshi Parks, the associate editor at 7 by 7 Magazine, is here to share meaningful ways to both make a difference and spark some joy around the Bay Area during the holidays. Welcome back to State of the Bay, Shoshi. Thanks, Grace. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with a few ways to give back. Um, What are your suggestions on volunteer experiences that you can um, enjoy during this holiday season? Yeah, there are just so many options, um, so many great organizations out there that could really use the help, um, not just at this time of year, but all year round. Um, But I think, you know, one of the first things people think of in in terms of how they can contribute around this time of year has to do with food. Um, Obviously, you know, this is a great food season for those of us um, who can afford it. But there are a lot of folks out there who are struggling to have their needs met. Um, In fact, uh, I think one statistic I read from the San Francisco Marin Food Bank said that there's 20 percent more need now um, than there was just before the pandemic. So um, so there's a lot of folks out there in need of help and, and they really need volunteers. So the San Francisco Marin, Marin Food Bank, um, Second Harvest, if you're on the peninsula or in the South Bay, Alameda County Community Food Bank um, is another good one. They are all looking for volunteers um, pretty much all the time, <laughs> especially now. Well, if you volunteer at a food bank, what what can you expect to be doing? Yeah, great question. So they generally have a few different options, um, one of which would be filling packages um, to give to families. Um, so that might be, you know, you're in the dry goods section and you're kind of combining all sorts of you know, canned and boxed goods. Um, that will eventually go into the the package that they give to each family. Uh, you might be in like the the produce section where you're kind of um, in this frenzy of like throwing carrots and onions into um, you know different boxes. Um, or you could participate in um, either handing out the food at a regular. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure what they call them, but when um, folks come to pick up, yeah, 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 I guess pop-ups, when folks come to pick up their food, um, there's also some situations in which you can, um, almost like a, um, you are bringing the food to the folks that need them. So, you know, you're driving around and and dropping off the care packages. Um, I know that um, SF Marin um, Food Bank is uh, looking for some volunteers there as well. I have to be honest, I have done this and it is super fun. I've done it with my children, uh, my family, and it just, there's nothing just more fun than being able to put together food packages and know that they're going to people who need them. Um, and it's ex- kind of extraordinary in this town where we're such a foodie place that um, there are so many folks who don't have enough to eat. Yeah, it, it really is a sobering fact when you hear that, especially, you know, post-pandemic, 20% more um, are in need. Um, and I agree. I think it's fun, too. And what I love about volunteering at the food bank is um, that it's almost, you have to, of course, sign up in advance, but there are so many shifts open that mm. you can pretty much go whenever you want. Um, so if you have a really busy schedule, um, you know, but you know that there's one, you know, afternoon that you have open that you could maybe spend volunteering, um, the chances are there is something out there that is in need of volunteers in the food department. Well, one of the nonprofits you highlighted in your article for 7 by 7 was Dress for Success. Tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about that organization. 
Yeah, so Dress for Success is an organization that um, provides clean professional clothing for women who are either looking to get back into the workforce, um, who have maybe come from um, domestic violence situations and are sort of looking to restart their lives, or perhaps um, were unhoused and again are are sort of trying to transition back into the job market. Um, So that's a wonderful place to um, donate any, you know, clean, gently used professional clothing um, specifically for women um, to that one. Although there are a couple other places in the city that also take clothing for men and for kids like St. Anthony's, for example, they have a big um, closet, I guess you'd call it, um, mm. where they um, allow folks who are in need to come in and, and sort of select their their clothing, which which is great. Well, how can a listener donate to Dress for Success? Oh, good question. Um, so check their website. Um, I believe it's just actually, uh, I shouldn't say this out loud, but I think it's just dressforsuccess.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, they either have, um, you can drop it off at their facility or they'll sometimes do um, sort of pop-up events where where they're collecting clothing. Or another option is to um, get together with sort of friends or family, make a, a really big, you know, collection of stuff and, and then um, arrange with them a time to come drop it off as well. Well, that seems like a really good place to put your gently used clothing. Um, and if you don't have a lot of time, you're a busy person, and, but you still want to give back, do you have any suggestions um, for ways to volunteer that are sensitive to time? Yeah. Um, I mean, not necessarily ways to volunteer, because of course, volunteering demands some um, contribution of time, but there are so many ways that you can give back without really, uh, you know, putting much effort in. So one way um, would be through wine, purchasing certain um, wines from certain vineyards or wineries that are um, slating a portion of their proceeds to go towards a particular cause. So, for example, Frank Family Vineyards um, is donating a portion of the proceeds from one of their um, varietals to an organization called K9 for Warriors. And this is an organization that trains shelter dogs to serve as companions for veterans. Um, there are also, I mean, there's there's several of them that are doing something along these lines. Um, Bricolure, Vineyards, Farniente, um, Benovia. They all have um, certain bottles that when you purchase them, a portion of the proceeds are donated to a charity. This feels um, like and- such a win, Shoshi. So basically, I buy a <laughs> bottle of wine and then I'm doing good for Canine for Warriors. Or uh, That sounds exactly. amazing. I mean, it's a win-win. Sign me up for more of that. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of fun holiday pop-ups to look forward to. I mean, tell us a little bit about some holiday pop-ups that we should keep our eyes out for. Yeah, I love these. I love um, this time of, of the year when um, you know we see a bunch of bars and restaurants really going all in with the decor. Mm. Um, so there are a few that that I'd love to point out. One is Tureen at the One Hotel San Francisco, which is on the Embarcadero. They are turning into a ski chalet for the mm. month of December. Um, so that's a fun one. They're also going to have some um, uh, workshops involving um, holiday type skills. So like card making, for example. Ah. Um, we've also got the Champagne and Caviar Lounge, the Pop Lounge, which is at the Westin St. Francis in Union Square. Um, that one, I think, is just, you know, it's just such a festive location. You're looking out on, um, you know, on Union Square, all decorated for the season. Um, so that's a really fun one. 
Um, and then there are a couple of rooftop bars uh, that are also really going all in this season. One is Cayo Rooftop, um, and the other is Cavanya, um, which is doing a sort of Latin American winter wonderland, is what they're calling it. Where are those places located? Um, Cayo is in is down near the ballpark. Um, Cavanya. You know, I'm honest, I've never been there, so um, I'm not exactly sure where it is, um, but it is definitely in the city. And I, I do think it's down in that sort of um, general um, sort of Soma, Mission Bay kind of area. Well, it would be fun to be on a rooftop this time of year to see all the sparkling lights. and I mean, Exactly. This, so festive. Yes. And the ski chalet sounds like you'd be eating a lot of fondue or, and stuff like that, or fondue, <laughs> maybe we should be calling it. Um, what, what are you going to be doing to give back this season show? Uh, well, I'm really looking forward to volunteering at the food bank, which I, I do do it regularly, but there is just something about um, this season that, you know, just makes, I don't know, puts people in a, in a really great mood and, and it just feels so good to be able to go in for a few hours and, and really work hard for, for folks who need it. Um, but I will definitely also be taking advantage of um, those wine um, contributions. <laughs> and there are a few other spots too, like um, Ritual Coffee and Dandelion Chocolate Ooh. and Daily Driver mm. um, that also have similar sort of um, uh, situations where, you know, some of their products, if you purchase them, then a portion of the proceeds is going towards an organization of their choice. So um, there's a lot of good options out there if, if you just kind of keep your eyes open and in terms of ways to contribute without really doing too much at all. Well, I think we should just look out for your article in 7x7, Seven Seven, which lists all these options, um, ways yes. to volunteer and pop-ups to um, check out. I mean, final question, what's your advice on having this season of giving last all year long? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I think, you know, a lot of us have the best intentions to, um, you know, be doing this regularly, volunteering or contributing and it, it can get hard, you know, when you're when you're um, doing other stuff throughout the year. Um, but I think, you know, if you sign up for something that has a regular shift, you can attend. If you're the type of person that likes something steady on the schedule, maybe you can go month, once a month or once every couple of weeks. I think that's yeah. a great way to do it. Well, that sounds um, for me. Yeah, oh, that sounds so. I mean, it sounds amazing. And, and sadly, we've run out of time. But thank you so much, Shoshi Parks, Associate Editor at 7 by 7 Magazine. Happy holidays. You too. Thanks so much for having me. Great. And that's State of the Bay this week. Thanks so much to all of our guests and our listeners for their calls and comments. If you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, give us a call or send us an email at stateofthebay at org. Tonight's show was produced by Ann Harper and Kendra Klang. It was engineered by David Kwan. And tonight, our engineer was, our board operator was Tarek Ansari. Amazing job he did. I'm Grace Wan. Good night and thanks for listening. 